episode of Let's Schmooze. I'm Dougie Buck, the original screenwriter for the movie Sweet Home Alabama. Um, each month I'm bringing on guests for a discussion of topics related to writing for various entertainment media. Today we're going to discuss the state of affairs for underrepresented writers in the film and television business. My guests are Lisa Kors, former co-chair of the PGA Diversity Committee, and Marilyn Thomas, former co-chair of the WGA's Native American and Indigenous Writers Committee. Um, so welcome. Thanks for coming on. Um, and I, and I kind of want to start out by just giving a little bit of a, uh, a disclaimer to everyone that, um, you know, obviously uh, underrepresented writers and diversity is a big topic, and we are not experts on all aspects of that. So we're just going to talk about what we know about. Um, and we won't talk about what we don't know about, I guess, um, is one of the first tips of, uh, you know, being uh, proactive and anti-racist is don't talk about things you don't know about. Um, all right. So um, let's, so, uh, you know, I, I mentioned that both of you uh, have been uh, co-chairs of diversity committees for the Producers Guild and the Writers Guild, respectively. Um, but you're also both filmmakers yourselves. So let's just kind of begin with how you got into the business and kind of what your career has been all about. So um, Marilyn, why don't we start with you? Sure. Um, so I'm Marilyn Thomas. I'm originally from Canada. Um, I went to Vancouver Film School, which at the time was a four month writing program. Um, I had no ends with television. I had no idea what I was getting into. Um, <clears throat> so I did the writing program. We had to write a feature, a short, um, and a TV pilot in four months. So we basically started writing before we even knew like how to write. Um, it was a pretty fast and aggressive <laughs> way to learn. And yeah, and then um, my for the first five years of my career, I was an assistant. I got a job on Da Vinci's Inquest, which was a very popular Canadian television show. Um, I was a huge fan of it. It was in season five, I think five or six. And their offices were right across the street from the film school. And I decided I'm just going to go over there and ask them how I get a job. And one of my uh, one of my instructors, Joy, she knew I was going over there. She reached out to uh, one of the producers and was like, I have a student coming over there, be nice to her. <laughs> and so uh, I went over, I put my resume down and I said, I have no idea how to work in television. Um, I just finished this film class and tell me what I have to do. And so I got on that show. I did that for 10 years or for 10 years. God, no. Um, I did that for two years. <laughs> and then I was an assistant on a couple of other shows after that. And then I realized I had no time to write. So I decided I was just going to take a break and I started producing my own work. So I did that for about 10 years, came down to LA and it's pretty much start over and <laughs> figure things out all over again. Um, so yeah, that kind of brings me to here. <laughs> all right. And Lisa, how about you? Uh, hi, I'm Lisa Kors. Thanks for having us. Uh, let's see. Um, I went to Brown, which when I was there, didn't have a film department. They had something called semiotics, which was deep dive into film theory. Um, and they had a limited bit of production and it was just like, here, here's the camera go make a film about fear, but not like how you work it or anything. So that was interesting. That was fun. Um, and then I, like everyone, I'm from the East Coast and I moved here to LA. I got a job as an assistant. Um, I actually like went through a temp agency because I didn't know anyone and got hired at Samuel Goldwyn in business affairs, which is not my strong suit, but it was interesting because I saw how much everyone was paid. So I always like, like any job, if you can learn something, I think is a good job. And um, then after doing that for about a year or so, I decided I wanted to go to film school and I got into USC and I would, uh, my thesis film, I was lucky enough to be chosen to make one of the, do a thesis film. And it was a documentary and it premiered at Telluride. And I thought, you know, this is so exciting. <laughs> you know, I'm like 25 years old. I'm a Telluride. I'm going to be a documentary filmmaker. And then I realized, you know, insert needle, scratch, sound effect. 
that's not a career, at least it wasn't back then in the States. You know, there was, there's no government funding for documentaries. Um, but luckily, as I was doing the festival circuit, a production company approached me and they did all those um, DVD bonus features, which is documentaries. It's the making of for feature films. And so I uh, fell into that line of work and I loved it. I took to it like a duck to water. Um, and that was freelance, so it gave me both time on set. So I learned a lot about production, actual production as opposed to what happens in film school. Um, and it gave me time to write too. Um, you know, seeing what was filmed and then what was actually used in the edit process was great to learn that. Because um, time is money when you're on a set and you can't shoot, afford to shoot things that are not going to be in the final cut. Um, and that's pretty much it. I write one hour TV dramas, trying to sell my own show. And um, now I work at Disney in marketing to keep the lights on. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, cool. And, uh, and you're, you know, and I'm, I'm having you both on because you've been involved in the, um, in, uh, the, well, Lisa's yours is called a divert, divert, the diversity committee, I guess, at the Producers Guild. And, and Marilyn, you're one of the many committees under the diversity umbrella at the Writers Guild. Um, so, um, so before we get into specific things, I, I looked up some of the information from the, um, last Writers Guild diversity report to see like how we're doing, you know, obviously uh, not well is the answer <laughs> pretty much every year and will be for a while. Uh, you don't fix it overnight. But um, so the, the current statistics um, kind of in, a little bit encouraging in television, uh, less so in film. So um, in for movies last year written under the Guild auspices, 27% uh, were written by women, only 20% were written by people of color. Um, and then the other statistic they track is uh, over 55, um, which is sort of less the hot button topic, but, um, but you know, there was a, a lawsuit by a bunch of um, writers, a class action suit um, that um, I guess you'd say they won, I guess it was a settlement, but um, they got paid out um, for discrimination on age discrimination. So they, uh, that one is for film. Uh, is 18% are written by uh, writers over 55, 18% of films. This is actually better than TV. It's the one where it's better than TV. Uh, television um, is getting a little better. 44% uh, of television writing writers were women, um, and 35% were people of color. So that was stronger, but only 12% were over 55. So maybe age, uh, ageism or age discrimination could potentially be a bigger issue in television. Um, and the, the kind of like the best news was LGBTQ plus um, are roughly equal to their representation within the population, various groups. So um, there, we've more or less achieved parity right now on that on that one. But um, uh, so, you know, there's been progress. Um, those numbers are still well below population. Um, but uh, but there you are. There are some statistics for if you want some anybody wants some numbers. Um, uh, all right. So then. Um, so now let's. Uh, let me ask Marilyn first, because the um, or about the the uh, Native American and Indigenous Writers Committee released a letter uh, which you signed um, uh, that was a kind of a call to action for the industry. And I know also the um, the Black Writers Committee I think also released a similar letter. Um, there may be others; those which I'm aware of. So do you want to talk a little bit about that and about the issues that were addressed? Um, in that yeah, we wrote a letter and released it on Indigenous Peoples Day. Um, and it talked more about how, you know, how film can actually influence what's going on in the world. And, you know, me personally, when I came to LA and I started looking for reps, I had some comments that were really um, disturbing and, you know, that, that the reps think are funny and, you know, they're commenting on my race. And I'm like, I'm just, I just want to be a writer. And it's like, oh, like, do you get, like, I had somebody ask me if I get casino money. And it's, uh, that was something we addressed in the letter, how, you know, perpetrating this myth that all natives get casino money or free money or don't pay taxes. Um, it instigates this, like, anger towards natives. Um, so in those aspects, like media does influence how we're treated. And, you know, we also addressed, um, you know, honoring us with uh, native mascots and, 
you know, it's something that, you know, when you have a racial slur that is a prominent football team, it's, and, and people are defending it adamantly and they don't want to listen to you. They're like, well, we're honoring you. It's like, well, I'm saying I'm not honored. <laughs> um, you know, I've also like when I was taking rep meetings, um, somebody said, well, I don't know what to do with you. We don't have any Westerns. And it was just such a shock because I'm like, I don't write Westerns. I don't write period pieces. Like I write horror. I really want to work on these shows. Um, and it, I didn't even get to get that far. And I didn't get to get my stuff read. Um, ironically, the last year now that, um, you know, with the WGA and the ATA issues, um, we started putting together a diversity list. So lists of writers that are like pre-WGA or in the WGA of certain ethnicities. And we were doing staffing booths on Twitter. And I actually got read a lot. Um, I got read by like some fairly prominent companies. Um, I didn't get work out of it, but it was probably the most movement I've gotten in my career um, to be able to do that. And, you know, part of it was just, you know, I, th I think across the board with the Black Writers Committee, our committee, the Latino Committee also uh, put out a letter for Latino Heritage Month. All of us just want to be in the room and have our opportunities and not be the diversity hire. If uh, you look at some of the numbers, a lot of people that go through diversity programs, you know, they get their first job, but then they're not brought back and they're not hired. Um, and for anyone who doesn't know, a lot of times when you go through the program, your first staffing job is paid for by the network. And once that's off the table, they don't want you in the room anymore. Um, I'm also part of an organization called TAI, the Think Tank for Inclusion and Equity, and a lot of this stuff is addressed with them as well. How do we get people in the room? Um, how do we, you know, have the way we have our careers e equal to, you know, the straight white men? Uh, also, you know, Disabilities Committee, I think Disabilities, Native American, and Middle Eastern are the three smallest committees in the guild and um and the least represented on tv and media and 2020 is the first year we actually have in production a tv show that was created by a native creator and starring native leads 2020 <laughs> <laughs> yeah um i want to that's yeah which is great you know that's a, that's great it's a little late <laughs> but, it, it's, yeah. it took it's us a while to get here yeah yeah um i, I want to kind of um talk about that you, you mentioned you know the diversity positions which are where um uh I, if i understand this how they work anyway is that the networks basically pay for one right staff position you know the a show is given a budget right and so and then uh, for writers and then the showrunner has to hire writers within and you know, within the budget, and they're given one who's paid for by the network if for a diverse, uh, previously, un, or not previously, but an underrepresented writer, right, they're given that position. And, you know, you referred to the, the challenges that they found, though, is that, you know, when that, when their year is up doing that, they're often let go and replaced with the next free writer and not, don't get a chance to move on. Um, so, and I had an idea, actually, that, that maybe a way to address that if the from the guild, and I've talked to some of the board members about that, so I'm just putting it out here in case it uh, moves anything, which is, um, you know, I think the network should say they only get the free diversity hire writer if their staff hits some threshold of diversity, so that the rest of the staff has to reach some threshold of diversity if they want that, which would then encourage them to keep the writer that they spent a year training to write the show, you know, around so they can get their next free writer. So that's my idea, anyway, <laughs> for, for whatever it's worth. Um, yeah, and I just want to say, because I was reading the letter again, and then I went through the comments. I mean, nobody in diversity is looking for special handouts, special favors, whatever. We're looking for parity and to be treated the same way. Like when I go in a room and I'm like, here's my project. It's like, okay, is it native? Is it like, well, we don't know any native actors. It's like, well, if you make this show, you will. <laughs> um, you know, nobody is looking for like, yes, we have to do this many shows. It's like, no, like we're, I think we're personally creating some really amazing shows in our community. So 
like just being looked at at the same level as somebody who's not a diverse hire. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, another thing that is, that seems to be happening, um, we'll see, we've made these sort of progress. We've, it's been the year of the woman, I don't know how many times, right? And then it, <laughs> nothing happened, but, um, but, you know, like it does seem now that we're seeing many examples, not just sort of a single example of um, films and television shows with more diverse leads becoming big successes and it's getting harder and harder for that kind of like old, you know, the conventional wisdom that dates from like the 1950s that, um, you know, audiences will only watch a show with a white lead or there's, you know, like it's this conventional wisdom that they, that they never challenge, even though it's, it's decades old because it's just easier to kind of go with that conventional wisdom. But, um, I, you know, maybe just the changing landscape of um, Netflix and Amazon Prime is giving more opportunities. I don't know. Um, yeah. Uh, so, okay, so Lisa, why don't you talk a little bit about the Producers Guild Div Diversity Committee and the programs it offers? The PGAs. Uh, hallmark program is called the PGA Power of Diversity Master Workshop. I think that's the correct, correct name. Power of Diversity Workshop, you'll find it on the PGA website. And it's an outward facing program, meaning you don't need to be a member of the PGA to participate. And we take eight to 12 producers each year and it's modeled after the studio um, writing programs and that it's usually meets two nights a week now virtually because of COVID um, and we bring in guest speakers and we take you through all the aspects of producing the tools you'll need to produce your project from pitching to fundraising if you're going that route um, uh, to line producers we have every everybody across the board come in to help you figure out what are the tools that you need to get your project to the next step. And, uh, oh, and we look for diversity um, both in the script and behind the camera. Great. At and least one, if not both of those. Yeah. And um, and what else? And uh, what else does the committee do with? Uh, if you know, I assume it's not top secret what the committee does with. Oh, it. sure. No, not at all. Um, now it's it's shifted this summer, um, in that it used to be the Power of Diversity and Inclusion Committee, and we sometimes do events just for PGA members. Sometimes we do outward facing events. Like we've partnered with Amnesty International to do an event and at UCLA about issues of representation of um, immigrants, the immigrant community and how are we representing those stories. Uh, we also do events with the Writers Guild, DGA and SAG. I think with the Writers Guild, we did an event about disability and we had writers and I don't know if we had talent, but it was about making writers who go to set, helping everyone feel comfortable and getting everybody what they need to do their jobs. Um, so recently we've broken down the diversity and inclusion committee, which was sort of a big committee, a lot of people in it. And now we have working groups. So like-minded people can come together, working group, affinity group, if they want to come together to create an event or have, create an association amongst themselves. Okay. And, uh, and Marilyn, I, I asked about the letter, but anything uh, you want to talk about what else the um, Native American Indigenous Writers Committee does at the Guild? At the Writers Guild, I should say? Yeah, I mean, all of the diversity committees, we do events. Um, we, you know, we've done meet and greets where we get to meet with an executive or a showrunner um, just to kind of pitch ourselves and get more introductions so that they know we're out there. And that way, you know, people can't say, oh, but there are no native writers or uh, Latino writers, you know, we're there and they can come and meet us. Um, we do meetings where we all get together and we talk about the events. Um, we have done co-events with other organizations. Um, our, one of our big events, we're a fairly small committee, so it does get harder to do events. Although this year, I think we more, like, we probably tripled in size in the last year, um, which is really exciting. And, uh, but before that, one of our big events was the release of Taika Waititi's, uh, Jojo Rabbit. We did a screening at the WGA theater, which, oh my God, I don't think we've been there since. <laughs> um, it's a little bit crazy. 
so we, yeah, we had his movie. Fox was nice enough to like, we did it so last minute. They helped us get it all together. We brought Taika in, he did a Q and A. And then we did a little reception after where other writers get to meet each other. Um, yeah, we've done a couple of informative panels where we kind of address, you know, how to better represent, you know, not just our, you know, our diversity group, but others. And we did an event with showrunners who have actually put in native characters into their shows in modern day, like without the stereotypes and just how to show how successful their shows were. And it was just, they happened to have a native character. It wasn't, you know, shining the spotlight on it, going, everybody look and see what's going on here. Um, it was just, they had native characters. There was a native storyline and it just worked. It was just good television. All right, good. Um, so now I'm just gonna kind of ask you guys um, what you think, like some of the issues that are happening right now and, and possible solutions um, for you know, directions you'd like to see the industry go. Um, any thoughts? Uh, that's a big question. Yeah. Um, well, I think a lot of it is a pipeline problem, is you know, making sure that people coming up have access to either on-hands learning or classes and then it's the exposure, you know, breaking down that barrier. One thing that we were talking about in the PGA and um, actually wrote an article for our PGA produced by a magazine is for crew members. And so two women that work at, two producers that work at Blumhouse created this database that's called Cruvy. So you could type in like, I want um, a Native American sound mixer who lives in New Orleans, who's available on these dates. So I think things like that are really the future because they're searchable and you can, you know, have your favorites and you can have a private list and a public list because very often from the producer side of it, when you're crewing up for a project, it's all very last minute. You get that green light and you have to go and you tend to hire people that you've worked with before because so much money is on the line when it comes to production. So having tools like this, I think really, I hope will be the future and need to be the future. So to get rid of the idea that, no, I can't find anybody. I can't find a woman. I can't find a person of color. I can't find an indigenous person. Women, so, where are they? I know. <laughs> so hard to find us. Yeah. Well, and, and that kind of maybe brings up that, that the piece of the puzzle we haven't really discussed too much is representation, right? I guess, Marilyn, you mentioned it, and the, and the actual, I think a lot of the um, age discrimination lawsuit was actually against agencies rather than, um, you know, networks and so forth, so. Um, yeah, I did want to just kind of add on to what Lisa said. I mean, we're talking about pipeline, but um, from the top down, I mean, there are no executives who are Native American. Like, I think I've heard of one agent who might be Native, um you know when everybody's white above you it's really hard to go in and go yeah but this is a really authentic this story is different and it's like when those shows ha haven't been made they have nothing to gauge it against so they can't say oh yeah we had a really successful show like that no we the only show we've ever seen that was successful is something you know where we're seeing what we call them feathers and leathers um, you know, where natives are seen in post-colonial days. And that also adds to, I mean, I've gone to the film festivals where people are like, wait, you're native? Like, I thought you were all extinct. And it's like, nope, nope, there's, there's quite a few of us here. <laughs> um, and then just on the training side, you mentioned Lisa, like, I do agree those are really great, but at the same time, we have to also build ways for people to expand past training because so many times, you know, especially women and women of color, they're overtrained and they're still being told they're not qualifying. And, uh -huh. you know, I watched a bunch yeah. of straight white dudes in their thirties all get, you know, 
TV shows and like all these deals that would never be offered to a person of color. And it's really frustrating when you're like, wait, I have way more experience than them. What's the difference? And I can't get in that room. I can't, um, you know, I can't pitch that show. There's no way they would hand over the reins to an entire series to somebody of my level. And yet they're lower and they're getting it. Um, one of the things Ty also addressed was, you know, there are people who have had to come in and train showrunners to be higher than, like, to be a higher level than them. And, you know, that's a big problem. If you're saying you're qualified, but you're qualified enough to teach somebody, just not enough to run the show. <laughs> There's a really big imbalance there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and I think you, you mentioned several things. I think one of the things about the, um, the, you know, the, that they have no comps for it. And, and that's something, I, you know, because I, I teach a, some college classes and, and I, the students sometimes ask, you know, how did this thing get made? Or why, you know, why did this, why did the show get canceled or something like that? And, you know, usually my answer is like, if you just imagine everybody in Hollywood is terrified all the time, then a lot of the decisions make sense. So, and I think that's one of the things is like, they want to have reassurance and it's really hard if it's something that hasn't been done before. But of course, if you want to change things, you have to do things that haven't been done before. So you're asking people to take risk in a, in a industry that does not often reward risk. So, but that sometimes rewards it tremendously. I wonder if that's changing now that there's so much bandwidth and streaming and that shows don't have to hit those same viewer numbers that they do certainly in for broadcast or even for cable, you know, like a show like the queen's gambit. It's like, okay, it's going to be about a woman playing chess and her, the wardrobe is going to be on fire. <laughs> I can't imagine like that was the pitch. And yet everybody's talking about that. So I, I don't know. What do you guys think? Is that, is it turning around a little bit? Well, I think that's a really, I mean, I, I think it's, it's an interesting in, in two ways. One is I think you're probably right that, um, you know, Netflix and those kind of streaming services programming in niche markets works really well for them because they can draw, you know, they can get, they, they, they're not selling advertising time. They're trying to get new subscribers so they can get new subscribers from the niche. But it is weird that also like the show everybody's talking about is Queen's Gambit and that breaks like every rule of what's supposed to be safe. So, you know, and, and really Stranger Things is kind of the same thing. You're like, wait, kid leads set in the eighties, you know, like, that's not supposed to work. <laughs> and not with name talent. Yeah. You know, it's not like, I mean, The Crown, you know, I guess, it, maybe that's different because it's British. Um, but you also know the characters already going into it. So yeah, that's true. A, a knowledge base to start from. Well, that's yeah. Been, that's been one of the kind of problems, I think, in the industry historically is, um, you know, it's such a star-driven industry and, you know, like it's, that's, you know, you mentioned that they say, well, we don't know any native actors. Like, you know, they want a movie star. And if all the movie stars are white men, then all the movie stars stay white men because that's all that ends up getting made. And you're told as writers, write a castable script, right? So if all the movie stars are white men and you want to sell a script, you should write a white male lead, which then it all becomes self-perpetuating. Exactly. <laughs> so, so how do we crack that, I guess? Is... Well, I think we've talked about in the Writers Guild well, two things. One, you know, doing blind submissions. You know, yeah. why, why can't writers submit with no name on it? So you don't know who, who, who wrote it. And then also are we being encouraged to write, to do blind casting and then descriptions? You know, it could be she's energetic. I mean, it doesn't have to be she's six foot ten and blonde. It's, you know, she's the life of the party. Right. Could be anyone. Well, and that's well, no, she has to be at the party, but yeah. Yeah, that's um, that's one that that's uh, you know. So I'm curious. What you, there's a, some debate right now about you know what's the best way to describe if you're shooting for diversity. What's the best way to describe characters? Um, you know, on the one, I guess the argument on one hand is you know you should specify if you want diverse casting, you should specify race because otherwise everybody assumes you mean white. But on the other hand, if you if you know, um, there's an argument of like don't uh -huh. specify and they can cast anyone. Uh, do you guys have thoughts on that? Which way is the better way to go or other way? Can I tell you when I get my own show going? <laughs> <laughs> that might be that might be an easier discussion then. <laughs> I, I think the the one we can safely say is don't write that a the female lead is hot but doesn't know it, right? Like that's oh the, my god, that's, that's yeah, the one there, never there's, 
Yeah, there's some really great Twitter threads about how women are described. And it's funny, in one of my scripts, I did it with a male character. And it's like, oh, it's a really weird description for the guy. <laughs> He's cute, but he doesn't know it. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm not going to say whether or not I've ever been guilty of that sort of thing. But uh, yeah, we never want to do that anymore. Yeah, I think that does, you know, when you were talking about blind submissions, it made me think of this as well. But um, even when you do blind submissions, there is a bias because somebody writing for an identity, they're not necessarily um, like from that community, they can be writing into stereotypes, which is what we've seen in television, you know, which is going to be more recognized, like more readily recognizable to, you know, a white executive who has never been around like who might not have any diverse friends or has grown up in a very white community it's their impression of what that community should be which is largely influenced by media well do you think the networks and the studios should have sort of um i don't know what you'd call it some sort of diversity vetting you know, so if it is a white executive bringing in this project written by a cisgendered white male, and it's about characters that are not, you know, their wheelhouse, what they represent, you know, should there be some vetting process? Yeah, I mean, it's always an interesting conversation. And I'll say I'm speaking for myself, not my whole community. Um, you know, there's 576 tribes in the US and 500 in Canada. So you know, we're not a monolith, um, but to me, there is a difference between creating a diverse character and writing a diverse story. And something that is very specific to our community, I personally do not feel that people outside the community should write it. Whereas I strongly encourage shows that already exist include diverse characters that are just there because they, you know, they give something different to a character on your show. Right. Their storyline is not their diversity. Their storyline is their broken yeah. heart or their medical condition. Right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Marilyn, you and I have had this, this conversation in the past about kind of like that, that gray area between like, on the one hand, you know, you want writers to not just write characters exactly like themselves, because ultimately that doesn't help diversity, right? If everybody has to be the same race and gender and age as the writer um, but on the other hand like there is a, an element of like if you if you don't know the culture and you're writing a very culturally specific story or a story that's important to that culture in a way um, you know like perhaps a historical figure or something then that that's you're kind of treading on dangerous ground I guess yeah to me the question is why are you writing that story like and you know I'm gonna say I get triggered by the word fascinated when people say I'm so fascinated by your culture it's such a weird like I don't know I'm not in a museum or you know hanging on the wall or something it's always such a weird thing for people to say that to me and you know I will say I've been more comfortable in like workshops or conversations or meetings with other people of color because if I say oh that's actually not how it is they're like oh and they can relate it to how they've been treated. Whereas I have been in a conversation with someone and I'm like, that's actually offensive. And they're like, well, that's actually not. And I'm like, no, I'm telling you. And it, it becomes really uncomfortable. But you know, it's, it's not just getting diverse writers in the room. Like how do you create a safe space for them so that when you're writing a character and they're like, you know, that's actually offensive. The showrunner's like, well, this is what I'm gonna write. And you just have to sit there and sometimes it's like you're the, you're the token diverse person in the room so they can check off a box and it's a really unsafe space for you yeah and, and you know i think um that's definitely true that that uh you know in the more diverse writers rooms are in general the more everyone you know that cisgender white men will start to become more sensitive to that kind of thing when it's they're not just in rooms with other cisgender white men right like the more the more diversity you're around, the more you be kind of become sensitive to general diversity, I guess, rather than the tokenism kind of idea. Like, no, we got one, we're good, you know? I also wonder, you know, I wrote a medical show. I'm not a doctor, but you can bet one of the first 
people I had read my script before it went out to the wider world was a friend of mine who is a doctor. You know, he might not know about the character stuff, but he certainly told me, no, Lisa, that would never happen. You know, they'd say this instead. So I'm often surprised, like, people don't reach out. Right. We, I mean, with the guild, we've, uh, we created our own fact sheet with the guild and Ty is doing a Native American one. If you look on their website, Rate Inclusion, you can actually see the first batch of fact sheets, which are to help writers um, write diverse characters better. And we do get reached out to, but it's also a lot of free labor that is really, it's a balancing act. Um, you know, we all want to be writers. We don't want to be consultants. Well, We're also Sorry, what was that? Maybe it should be paid. Maybe we pay. I mean, it's, you're asking for expertise, you know, yeah, and maybe it should be paid. Yeah. I, the thing is, is there's no gauge for what that rate should be. So it's been kind of all over. Um, yeah. And again, everybody's different. Like what um, in Canada, I think it is a little bit different. We have a dedicated Native network, and I think there's a lot more acceptance by Natives to have their story told, whereas down here, they've been taken advantage of so much that it's, you know, a community that is very protective over their stories might not want somebody telling it. And just because one person in the community says you can write it, doesn't necessarily mean the community agrees with it. Yeah, it's a I, very, it's a very, it's a, it's a trapeze walk. Yeah, yeah, and I know um, in the publishing world, um, there may be this equivalent in, in features, but there's um, now there's this trend towards sensitivity readers um, yeah. that are paid people to read, you know, a script with a with a character that's not the author's, you know, demographic, um, mm -hmm. and uh, and you know, it is a paid position um you kind of you know like one of the problems there is this you know sometimes they're like well you know they don't necessarily take our advice just because we give them advice and then also you know there's there's that weird thing of like if i give my stamp of approval am i speaking for my entire culture you know that that i say yeah. like this doesn't offend me but that doesn't mean it can't offend someone else you know on the other hand i don't know that um you know at some point like it's hard not to offend anyone ever like that's you, you'd be so terrified to write a word if, if that was your standard but um you know so I guess there's it all just point number. What's that? You know, do you have ten people? Do you have like ten people read it? Is there a tipping point? Like what number? Like fifty people, a hundred people, a thousand people? The number would must be different for everybody, I would imagine. And you know, types of stories probably it matters too. So that's kind of you know what I was meaning, like we you know, if it's a science fiction, you know, if it's the Star Trek Enterprise, right, and you're gonna include you know, a Russian guy on the bridge, well, like it's far, the far future and things could have changed and maybe you're not so worried about stepping on cultural problems, but if you're gonna tell like a very important historical story about an important figure in that community, there's a sort of a higher bar, right? Um, mm -hmm. To do that. But you can put natives or any other diversity group in a Star Trek episode and it's not going to change the, you know, the, the heart of the show it's going to add to it. And you don't have to have sensitivity readers or like, it doesn't have to be culturally significant. You can put us in space. Like there is finally, <laughs> after how many seasons, the first native actor on Grey's Anatomy this year. Um, like, you know, one of the most famous native actors, Evan Adams, who was in Smoke Signals, he's a doctor. He took that money and went and became a doctor. And so when people are like, oh, are natives, do natives become doctors? I'm like, yes. <laughs> like, we, we do everything. We're lawyers, doctors, everything. <laughs> yeah. Well, all right, let me ask this then. Um, so given the statistics in the industry um, and kind of just the reputation of the industry, it could be very discouraging, right, for people outside of the business and even people inside of the business. Um, so, um, you know, but I don't think, I don't think it, it should, I don't think people should be discouraged. I mean, there's definitely opportunities there. I mean, it's hard because it's, it is just hard. It's a hard business, but do you have any advice for anyone that uh, would be trying to come into the industry about how they should you know, handle any of these issues or any strategies they should have? 
or even just like opportunities. Because I know one thing right now is a lot of the fellowships and everything are looking for diversity. So there is a lot of, you know, opportunities out there for someone with, although like you said, Marilyn, the training isn't always the problem. But if someone needs training, there's a lot of opportunities in that. In that. Yeah. And, well, you know, also, it is, uh, I was just going to say, I do kind of kick myself because one of the first managers I met was like, you're never going to get hired unless you go through a diversity program. So I became adamant that I was never going to do one. And I think it's kind of taken me longer because I came down to LA. I think it is a different system. It would have been a great way to network. I know a lot of people have gone through those programs and been very successful. So I think those are great, you know, they're a great opportunity as long as you're able to continue after that first season. I think that there needs to be more. I think those programs are great and they're wonderful, but what, 20,000 people apply for eight spots? That's, that's a drop in the bucket. It's, it's, it's not nearly enough. And then if we're saying, okay, so they pick eight to 10 people and then those people get staffed, but then the second year they don't, how is it working? I mean, there just needs to be, this is what I, I meant by saying it's a pipeline problem. I mean, okay, fine. Even if 10% of 20,000 people are amazing writers, there's still 2,000 people. Is that right? Am I doing my math right? That sounds right, um, yeah. Sure. <laughs> you know, there's 2,000 people that it's like this horrible game of musical chairs. That, you know, what about all those people who are really talented and whose voices we aren't hearing from? So, oh wait, you want encouraging. Okay, yeah. so. <laughs> well, I want, I uh, you know, maybe strategies or maybe not strategies, maybe the strategy is just, you know, write what you write and, and, and do it, I don't know. I definitely think yeah. writing, like writing what you're passionate about, um, continuously writing one of my, I, I will totally admit my own downfalls, which is I did not have enough materials going out for staffing. I had. A pilot, I had had um, a feature I turned into a pilot and I got all these meetings and, you know, I had a couple of people say, this is great. I'm looking for something more like this. And I didn't have it. And, you know, I had features and then I've sold a few features in Canada. But when people said, do you have anything that fits this? You know, I specialize in low budget horror and yet I didn't have anything available. So it's really like continuously writing. Um, this has been a really hard year. I personally have not felt very creative and it's been really depressing. Um, and I ended up taking a writing class. And even though part of me was like, I know this already, like I shouldn't be doing this. And at first it felt a bit demoralizing, like I shouldn't have to do this. Once I was going into it, it's a friend of mine that's teaching it and I adore him. And it's the first time I've ever had um, somebody who is part of a diverse group as an instructor and it's the first time I've ever had an instructor who is into genre whereas when I started film school and it was like oh god you write horror like I'm never going to read your stuff I'm like you're my instructor you have to um, so it was really encouraging in that aspect and just having a friend of yours being like oh my god this is awesome I can't wait to read it um, every time you're going along and it gave me deadlines so whatever that is that's going to make you keep going and you know a lot of us have wanted to quit along the way um you know you just got to decide what what it's worth like i personally every time i'm like you know what i've just had it i'm gonna quit there is nothing else in this world that gives me as much energy as working in this this industry. I mean, I remember my first days on set and I was like, this is it. This is where I want to spend my life. And, you know, I, I was an assistant on the pilot for the Blade TV series years ago. And we had somebody jumping off a roof without a harness. And I was like, this is the most exhilarating, crazy thing I've ever seen in my life. It was so fun. Um, so that's what I want to do. So you just have to keep at it. And Another thing I think I faulted in was everybody you come in contact with in this industry is the relationship you're building. Uh -huh. And I think, because I was an assistant in Canada and when I came down here, I reached out to the people I was assisting 
and they were working in television and I had only done features and I said, well, you're doing half hour comedy. Like I'm not funny. I don't write that. Um, and I think I'm just going to keep going in film instead of looking at the opportunity I had in front of me, which was here is a person I really like. They were so great to work for. They're offering me this and I'm going, yeah, it's not my thing. That was, that was not smart. <laughs> Good. Lisa, any? Um, I would say uh, I agree with you, Marilyn. It's been a hard year. It's hard to get inspired to write. Um, two things I've been thinking about lately is I am working on a podcast. I love crime, crime shows. And I've been working with a production company on podcasts, a scripted um, crime podcast, which has been a lot of fun. So sometimes switching up your genre or switching up your format gives you a new, um, new boost of energy. I was nervous because I'd never done a podcast. What does that look like? You know, there's no books or YouTube videos about like, how do you do write a podcast? So flying blind, a little bit learning. And then I look at my son who is 12 and, you know, he begs me, he doesn't have devices. So he begs me to go on, um, his dad's computer because he's working on a novel. <laughs> he's amazing. I, right. I mean, I, I don't think he knows it's a novel, but it's 78 pages now. You know, he just That's calls amazing. it amazing. Yeah. But it's to him, he looks at it as he looks at writing like a gift, like something he gets to do, not something he has to do. And I realized, especially this year, I've been thinking writing just feels like a something I have to do. I have to come up with that script that's going to take the town by storm. And, and I lately have just been thinking about what if I just peel all that back and just go and have a mind like my son's mind. Like this is something I get to do. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, I saw something on Twitter. I wish I remembered who tweeted it. I like to give credit, but they, they said, uh, you know, relating to kids that um, you, your kids aren't falling behind. They're surviving a pandemic. And I think, you know, we got to give ourselves a little permission there as well to say, you know, like, yeah, we may not be doing as much writing as we did last year, but it's a pandemic, right? Like, give yourself a break. Like, don't expect to it's be. It's a metamorphosis year. Yeah. You know, yeah. we're changing. We might not know what butterfly we're going to become yet, but we're cocooning. We're gaining weight. <laughs> and we'll emerge <laughs> stronger and yeah. just a little bit not guys. I, I really think, I mean, some of the things that have been very helpful is having higher level writers saying that they're having a hard time writing because at the beginning of this, I was, you know, on some uh, writers groups and people are like, you have to, like, you have to come out of this with two new pilots and you have to be writing and you should be doing this. And I was like, I, like, what I've realized for me is I've just had to reset. I've been treading water for so long I just had to stop and go what do I really want to do and yeah we're surviving a pandemic we had you know riots in LA like we were waking up to the smell of smoke at night we weren't sleeping I also had like I lost my two fur babies earlier this year like that was devastating for me that's um you know my my pets of 15 years and I lost them both within 15 or within two weeks and I was like I just need to stop uh -huh. and I think the more people give themselves permission to just do that you know even reps when you meet them they're like well you're only a real writer if you write every day sometimes you just need to stop get back on track like think about what makes you passionate um I've gone back and I redid The Artist's Way, which I did in film school. I've been doing my morning pages every day. I said, if the one thing I get done every day is my morning pages, I'm okay. Like that's, you know, I've done something. And you just gotta figure out what it is that works for you. Like, and yeah, we're, we need mental health. We're not seeing our friends. We're not being social. Like I have, I'm somebody who's diagnosed with anxiety. So I go to the grocery store and people come reach over me to get something. And I'm like, what are you doing? And, and just, you know, I start to panic and I'm like, I just need to go home and breathe. <laughs> I think you're exactly right, Marilyn. I think, especially in America, we have this productivity status 
idea that if you're producing a certain amount, it gives you some kind of status. Like I feel like we flaunt it, especially writers do it to each other and to ourselves. And I think you tap on something really meaningful that why are we so afraid to pause? And maybe in that pause is like the marrow of our lives and the marrow of our storytelling. Like that's where the good stuff is. Why isn't the conversation, you know what, the best thing you can really do right now when our lives feel like a house on fire is to pause and turn inward and converse, like find out who you are and what you're thinking and what you're scared of and what your inner seven-year-old child has on his, her, their mind. I don't know. That's my magic beans right now. Yeah. You know, and when I got into film, it's funny because the first five years of my career, being Native was a non-issue. On my first show, my showrunner knew I was Native and it was like, oh, you're Native of what nation? And that was it. It was never a conversation in a way that made made it feel like it was affecting my work. And, you know, I made a bunch of short films with friends and we did really well and it was just fun for me. And at some point it stopped being fun, but it's still all I want to do. Like when I think about giving it up, it would give me anxiety. So I was like, something isn't working here. And through all this, I'm like, what did I love? What stories did I want to tell? And I actually have a hard drive I found of scripts I, I was writing 10 years ago. And I was writing, you know, a short every week wow. like just for fun. And I'm reading it. I'm like, oh my God, this is so hilarious. Like, this is something I sent one of them to a friend of mine. I said, I wrote this like 10 years ago. And she's like, this is hilarious. You have to make it. I'm like, it was just something I wrote for fun. Um, and that's what I used to do is just do it for fun instead of like, okay, I have to sell this. Like, who am I going to network with? Mm -hmm. Um, and somebody gave me advice at the beginning of my career and said, whatever you do, don't chase the money because I see so many people chasing the money and the trends. And by the time you're, you're going out with that, the trend is over. Yeah. And I have, you know, I have been consumed with like, okay, I need to get on a show because I need to make money and I need to do this. And, you know, it's like just stopping and going, I just really like, it, it had been years where I forgot that at some point I said, if I can spend the rest of my life making like 80 style B creature features, I would be in heaven. And I was like, when's the last time I wrote a creature feature? And that was my dream. So now I'm like, okay, like what projects am I going back to? And what did I really love? And what project has not left my head in the last five years? I'll, I'll tell you something that um, my late great agent, Lou Weitzman, uh, told me, which I feel like if, the, if, some, if anyone asked me what my best piece of advice I ever got, um, there's a little backstory to this, which is I was having lunch with him back in the days when agents actually had lunch with their clients, which doesn't seem to happen anymore. Um, <laughs> but I was having lunch with him and we were thinking about like, what's the next spec I was going to write? And I, you know, he's like, come with some ideas. So I made this list of 10 ideas. And then afterwards I was like, so there's this other thing, you know, and this is, this is like, I'm known as a romantic comedy writer and everything. And I said, there's a 16th century astronomer that like nobody outside of the science world has ever heard of named Tycho Brahe, but he's like this fascinating guy. And like, there's a book about him. Maybe we could option the book. And he's like, well, no, forget the book. Just tell me what the story is. And so I like pitched it to him. And he's like, you should write that. And then he started laughing. He's like, the expression on your face, he goes, you didn't think I was going to say that, did you? And I said, no. And he said, he goes, look, here's the thing. I've been in this business for decades and things I think are guaranteed sales don't sell. Things that I think uh, have no chance are end up being the ones that become the big hits. He goes, the one thing I've learned is that when writers write what they really love, they tend to do well. So he's like, do the one you, you clearly love this, do that one. So I thought like, that's really good. You know, from a guy that's been in the business a long time and makes his living selling things. That was really interesting point of view. On that. I think that's so true. I mean, if you're not having joy writing it, there's not going to be joy on the page and someone won't have joy reading it. Right. I, I will say the best advice I ever got was three words. <laughs> Wear comfortable shoes. <laughs> More for production than writing, but you know. Right. Uh, That's good advice. Yeah. yeah. Well, and Doug, you and I both have, I don't know if you have Lisa, but Doug and I have both also ventured into directing, which is something I said I would, I was adamant. I was like, I will never ever in my life direct. Um, and I did 
I, I mean, I did one in four hours, like 15 years, I don't know, 12 years ago. And I was like, that was interesting, but I didn't really get it. And um, I was an assistant on a show and I showed the director and he goes, give it a couple more years and try it again. And I was, you know, I got into a situation where I was like, I'm never going to do this. Like, it's not something that I should be doing because there's people much more qualified. And then I think two years ago, friends of mine asked me if I wanted to do a short film for a blood drive. And I was like, sure. And then I forgot about it. And then I was like, I'm supposed to deliver this. So I guess I have to shoot it. And, you know, it might not necessarily be like the best thing, um, but being on set and being like, oh my God, that was exactly how I envisioned that shot um, was amazing. And just, you know, trying new things, like giving yourself those opportunities, don't say no to anything. Uh -huh. um, who knows where things can take you? Like, yeah, I actually, I, I still feel very awkward. Like, it's funny because as an assistant, you don't really have a, a place on set. And then as a writer, you don't have a place on set. So I'm always very awkward on set. So being a director where you're like the person on set, I'm like, I don't know, I don't know, somebody else around here <laughs> that can answer that. Um, and that's something I still have to work at. But I reached out to a, a director I like on Twitter and I said, you know, how do you get over that imposter syndrome? And I said, like, I was never trained as a director. I'm learning how to do shots. I'm like, I don't know this stuff. And she said, every time I get on set and I feel like I don't know what I'm doing, I remember that somebody like less smart, less qualified, less talented is doing the exact same thing and not having those thoughts. And it just, that's it. You know, you just have to tell also yourself. Hire, yeah. hire a great DP. Yeah. Hire that a great is the one thing I do know. Hire, yeah, hire a great DP, somebody who's your collaborative partner and you know, gets what you get. And yeah, I want to, I want to work with somebody who loves horror and who knows all these, who knows all those little tricks of like making things like the suspense and those kind of things like come to life. Yeah. Uh -huh. Cool. Well, thank you guys. This has been an, a great discussion. And uh, as I mentioned at the beginning, we did not solve all of the Hollywood's problems, um, but that's we didn't. Okay. Yeah, it's a, uh, we're it's obviously an ongoing topic, but. Um, uh, oh wait, Doug. Yes. Sorry, I forgot to do a shout out to like my first film, oh, my yeah. thesis film, um, is now on Amazon. It's streaming on Amazon, so maybe you can put the link in the show, show notes. It's Shana yeah. Madel's Orthodox Jewish Teenage Girls, and I think if like thirty thousand people watch it, I make a dollar. So. Oh great. <laughs> And yes, and it's a documentary that you directed, right? That's right. Uh, yeah, yeah, great. Okay, yeah, I'll put the I'll put the link in there. And you know, I just want to do one little th one little plug. Like, if you are somebody who wants diverse shows on television, watch them, watch them over and over again. I know Netflix. One of their things is uh, repeatable viewing. So if you love a show on Netflix and like you're like, I'm not gonna have time to watch it a second time, throw it on at night and let it go so it gets all the views. <laughs> um, do that. And I just want to give a shout out, like, because this is the first year we actually have native shows in production. I really hope everybody watches uh, Rutherford Falls on Peacock, which is uh, Ed Helms and Sierra Ornelas. Um, Janish Meeting and Michael Gray Eyes are the leads. Um, Jana is one of my good friends. I'm super, super proud of her. And I'm so excited for the show. It's a, a half hour comedy to show you that natives can be funny and seen in modern day. Say the title um, again so we all hear it. Uh, Rutherford Falls on Peacock. And then the second show, um, I'm not sure where they're at, but uh, Reservation Dogs, which I think is an effects show. <laughs> Sorry, guys. Um, which is Sterling Harjo. And then just recently it was announced that um, Sovereign, which is a TV show by Sydney Freeland and Bird Running Water, who is part of the Sundance Labs, um, are running that with Ava DuVernay. And I just want to say like the Sundance, Sundance Labs are great. 
Bird is so active in the community. He's come out to the WGA and talked to us. Um, these are native specific labs. Um, so yes, watch diverse television. If you are not in a position of power, that is your power. Great. All right, good, good tips and shout outs and uh, everybody go watch some great uh, programming. All right, um, thanks guys uh, for coming Thank on. You. And for those watching, uh, hopefully I will see you next time. Thank you.